This session is called Pass or Fail, Truth, Parenting, and Educational Choices. And my heart's desire in this time uh, is not just to address parents. I I almost feel like this is almost a no-win situation where if you address parents, then you isolate other people. And if you don't address parents, then you isolate them. So I'm just going to try to either lose really well or to try to win everything. And and my goal is whether you are a parent or, or not at the moment, that you would walk away understanding better the nature of truth and the sufficiency of Scripture. And if you are a parent or involved in the lives of young people, you would understand the tremendous privilege that you have in participating directly in the plan of God, and that overall we would truly exalt Christ for all that He has done and and exalt the truth and be all the more desirous to be sharper in the Scriptures. So these are kind of the goals of this time together. Yes, it will involve parenting. Yes, it will be involved educational choices. But there's something much bigger than that that has to take place, and I'd like to share a little bit of that with you all. So let's begin our time to that end with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we love your word. It is so powerful. It is unique. It is complete and comprehensive. It is profound and sheds light on our entire existence in so many different ways. Help us to have our eyes open to those realities. Help us to not grow comfortable in what is the status quo, thinking that it's just normal, but to really be attuned to the Word of God and how it subjects all ideas and matters to the obedience of Christ. May it be that we see and are renewed in our conviction that there is no word like your word, that it is all-sufficient, that it is, every part of it, every aspect of it, perfectly designed by you for a reason, and may that help us to persevere both in our own personal lives as we read and are conformed by your word unto yourself, as well as as we instill these truths in the next generation. We ask your blessing on this time. We ask that it would be edifying, and we ask that it would be worship and glory unto the giver of the word, and that is you, the triune God in whose name we pray. Amen. So, by way of introduction, you might have looked at the title and thought, why? Why, why, why do they want Abner to speak on this? And even more, why get Chow? I mean, is this really going to just be an infomercial for the Master's University? Uh, and, and I was thinking the same thing, and I thought, oh, no, I hope not. And, and truly, this, this is not going to be an infomercial for the Master's University or the seminary or all the other related ministries here. That, that, to me, would be a really gross abuse of pastoral ministry. I'm not here to sell you anything. That would be a disservice to you. Rather, I truly want to build you up. I want to, like I mentioned, emphasize the nature and beauty of truth and the nature and beauty of Scripture and to encourage us to keep persevering in ministry of all kinds and specifically in parent and parenting. And I want to encourage parents about parenting and, and help us, even as we interact with parents here at Grace Church, to spur them on to love and good deeds and spur them on to enduring a very rigorous course of life but one that is directly 
ordained and participatory in the plan of God. And so, by way of introduction to all of this and thinking through education, and I'll say this over and over, we need to take a step back. And the first step back is to understand that the Christian life is a war. It's a war. And sometimes we forget that we are at war, but the Bible emphasizes all the time and makes it clear that as Christians, we are engaged constantly in battle. Ephesians 6 reminds us to put on the full armor of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 reminds us that we put on the helmet of salvation. 2 Timothy 2 reminds us of the discipline of a soldier. 2 Corinthians 10 reminds us that we are engaged against error, capturing every thought to the lordship of Christ. Jude makes this clear as we contend for the faith. And Peter makes this clear because we wage against the flesh in 1 Peter. And in 2 Peter, we are also combating false teachers. We know that the truth of Christ and the gospel is central. It is central for the church. We are his witnesses, Acts 1.8. We are the pillar and grounds of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And our struggle then is never against flesh and blood, but rather we have to fight to have the truth remain. We have to do all that we possibly can, as Ephesians 6 reminds us, so that in the end we still stand and we hold forth, as Philippians 2, the word of life. Christian life is a war. And why this becomes particularly hard for us is because our war is a spiritual war. Our war is not flesh and blood in that regard. And our war in that way is often a silent war. It's a silent war. We are used to the drama, the physical violence, the threat of war, the intensity of it. But this war is a silent war. And what makes it very, very tricky to just be lulled into apathy and lulled into sleepiness and passivity in these matters is really, are really two things. One is this. There is a danger of what I might call normalcy. What I mean by this is that as believers, we get lulled into thinking, well, this is the way things are. This is the way things should be. This is the, the status quo that I've inherited. And so we don't think about why we're doing what we're doing. We don't think about what we are doing. We just go along with the flow because that's what's always been around us. And we can't imagine anything else. We can't imagine anything else. The danger of normalcy is, is quite high because it just makes us feel comfortable. And we think things are true, are okay, not because the Bible told us it was okay. It's because of the problem that we see and we tell our children about all the time. Just because everybody does it doesn't make it right. Well, look in the mirror. That's what we often do. Why do you have what you have? Why do you do what you do? It's just because everyone else does it, just because everyone else has it. It's not necessarily because Scripture endorsed it. And so there is a danger of normalcy. And on top of that, a second danger is that what can happen in society, what society deems legal, all of a sudden the church makes acceptable. This is a very, very noticeable pattern, at least in Western civilization. Whatever society says is permissible— starts to become acceptable in the church. I love talking to senior saints 
who have seen trends and who are not young and reckless and restless because they have seen things. They have seen things come and go, and they have memories that go beyond and before what has become normal to us, what society has permitted. For example, I remember talking to one individual who said, I remember when divorce was illegal. When divorce was illegal. It was a crime to get divorced. You could go to prison for getting divorced. And, and he said, and this was a professor, he said, when divorce became legal, the church began to wrestle whether it was okay or not. Did you catch that? When divorce became legal. It was the courts that said divorce was legal. The Bible never changed. All of a sudden, now the church began to wrestle with whether it was okay or not. Why? Not because the Bible all of a sudden morphed all those different passages in Matthew and 1 Corinthians and the like. It was because the courts had changed. It's because the courts had changed. And he said... And this was so remarkable. He said he stood up in church in a meeting and said, if the church caves on divorce, we will eventually have homosexuality in the church. Because you compromise on the definition of marriage, there is no stopping how far the compromise will go. And everyone in the church laughed at him and said, that will never happen. That will never happen. Well, where are we now? Where are we now? What often society deems as permissible, the church starts to morph and make it acceptable. We must be very, very careful. Just because society says it's okay doesn't mean that we think it's okay. Just because society says it's legal doesn't all of a sudden turn on a switch in our mind that says, oh, well, then I think God probably would be okay with that too. That's not how this works. If you want more recent illustrations of this, think about how LGBTQ has come into churches at large, and I'm speaking now quite generally. It was when the Supreme Court said, yeah, this could work, that all the churches started to ponder, well, well, maybe, maybe we should accept this too. We're seeing the same thing now, over and over and over and over again. When the government says you can use certain pronouns, then the church says, well, maybe we should have pronoun hospitality. Whatever people say is permissible, for some reason, in our heart, we think, well, then it might be acceptable. But that's not how things work. We are in a silent war, and sometimes we are ceding ground and losing biblical positions and compromising on biblical foundations, and we don't even realize it. This is a silent war. And education fits the bill for everything that I've just said, because education is very normalized in our society. You go to school. Why? Because you do. Where do you go? to this one school. Why? Because everybody does. And you learn certain subjects. Why? Because that's what they have for you. We don't think twice. We don't think about how this works or what's being taught. And in school, they teach you certain subjects and they teach you certain purposes behind those subjects. Here's why you need to learn these things. To get a job, to have the American dream, to, to work really hard and make some money and provide for yourself and fulfill who you want to be, and, and that with that, they set what you do, why you do it, 
and the purpose and goals for it. And they have outlined basically the entire philosophy of life and people just buy it. Why? Because it's normal. Why? Because society said, this is not only okay, this is great. And everyone starts to have it. And education asserts these kinds of things with such confidence and such comprehensiveness, because you got the beginning, you got the middle, you got the end of everything, that now the Bible takes a sidestep. Sometimes we wonder, why is it that we so struggle, we so struggle to see the Bible as sufficient? Sometimes we wonder, why is it that we don't run to the Scriptures? Why is it that so many people's favorite verse, because we struggle with this issue so much, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, yes? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight we we love that verse why because we struggle so much to trust in the lord why is that why is it that we always go to our own understanding well in part and a massive part is because of our own heart we're pride we're proud we're arrogant we're self-sufficient and what doesn't help the situation is that you have an educational system that actually feeds that sinful mentality and when you feel like you've got it all you know why you do what you do you know what you do you've got it all together you understand everything then why do you need a bible why do you need a bible it's just suggestions at that point because you already know its commands are less authoritative because you already have authority and control of the situation. Its ideas are outdated because you have something up to date. That is what education can do. That's the silent war. And people are winning the silent war and infiltrating the church with that without a single shot fired. Why? Because it's normal. Because they said it was okay. So you said it was okay. That's what's going on. We have essentially handcuffed the Bible because people say, well, how does the Bible apply to that? How does the Bible apply to this? How does the Bible extend over here? Does the Bible have jurisdiction over that? Every single question like that exists because both the human heart is so proud and also because education has posed itself as, well, we have all the answers about all these different things. If you want the Bible, you can have that on the side. You can have that on the side. And we've imbibed all of that in. And so to really understand this issue about parenting and education and everything, you have to go back to what we should always be going back to, which is the Scripture, and really understanding what it is. And we need to take a step back and understand the nature of truth. And, and that will not just encourage my prayer, is that it won't just encourage us as parents. It will encourage all believers. It will encourage and challenge all of us to understand this. And once you have the total framework of what the Bible really is and what truth really is, then with clarity you can see education for what it is and what it's not. And that leads to how then to respond to those issues as parents. So there are three points to this session. One is to understand truth. Second is to understand education or teaching. And then to understand 
kind of how we approach this as people who disciple young people are parents, and those are the teachers. So three T's, truth, teaching, teachers. With that in mind, let's talk about truth. Like I said, education in our own heart has the intense desire to silo Scripture, to make the Bible just on the side, to limit its effect and impact, to restrict its jurisdiction. We often ask questions, is this relevant? Is this useful? Does this have bearing? I don't see how the Bible can speak to this issue. And all of those kinds of statements attempt to silo Scripture. But as Paul says, the Scripture is not bound. And really, instead of being siloed away, just part of the whole, what I'd like to contend with you all now is that Scripture is the substructure of all reality. Scripture is not siloed. Scripture is the entire framework of everything that is. And through this, let's see the sufficiency of Scripture. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. For one, you could say that the Scripture is greater in breadth than what we know. The Scripture is greater in breadth than what we know. Sometimes we think, oh, the Scripture fits in to whatever I'm learning. No, no, no. You fit in to what the Bible says. This is the breadth of Scripture. And a good way to think about it is to think about the nature of what we call worldview, i.e., how you view the world. And in looking at that, there are four major parts of worldview that people think about. And I'll show you how they logically fit together. Thankfully, they all begin with E's, but they're very fancy-schmancy words. One is epistemology, which is a fancy-schmancy word for how do you know what you know? And, and why do you know that you know what you know? Those kinds of issues. How do you know what is true? How, how did somebody convey that to you? What is the ground? What is the authority that tells you your definitions and what is life and who is who and the labels and everything? That's epistemology. The second in worldview is what we call etiology. You say, what in the world is that? That's why things are the way they are. Also known as the backstory, the origin story of everything. Why things are the way they are. In Greek mythology, you can read those stories, and they're all designed to tell you, and that's why this happens. Why is there an echo? Because somebody got trapped and became invisible and started screaming and could only imitate what other people said, and that's why echoes exist. You know, all that kind of stuff. That's all etiology, the backstory behind things, why things are the way they are eschatology, I think we're familiar with. Instead of talking about the past, we're talking about the future. And you, need that in, and you need that in worldview. You need to know where things are going. That filters how you live now. That gives perspective and motivation and even sets what's valuable. If you tell somebody your eschatology is to make lots of money, then that sets exactly their heart's desire and goal. If you tell them what is worthwhile is only done for Christ, well, then that sets a completely different mentality. Eschatology, it matters. It matters. Well, on top of that, like we said, you have the past, etiology. You have the future, eschatology. So now you need the present, and that's what we call ethics. What do you do right now? In light of why things are the way they are, 
and where things are heading. If you know the end game, if you know what really matters, if you know what you need to do to win, then you need to take specific prescribed actions to get there. And that's what's ethical. That's what's valuable. And so this all isn't just crazy and arbitrary. There's a reason why all these four things fit together. Because worldview is basically, how do you know what you know about why things are the way they are in the past, why things will be the way they are in the future, and how you live in light of that? Worldview is basically telling you, do you understand your context? What's in the past, what's in the future, and what's present? That's it. And here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. Scholars and philosophers have organized these thoughts for the last several hundred years, and they say, if you're going to have a real worldview, you got to have all four of these things. Super important. No worldview is complete without them, and we have a bunch of worldviews in Western Civ and everything that are incomplete. The Bible has it all. The Bible has it all. This is this, the Bible knew this before those guys knew it in Germany and other places, clearly, because it's been written for a long, 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 long time. And you say, well, how does the Bible have these things? Well, does not the Bible talk about itself? Does not the Bible talk about why you have the Word of God as divine revelation? That it tells you what you do not know. That God is truth, and that God has worked in man so that you can understand what he wrote because it's using the words and the rules of language. And not only that, but that the word of God is inerrant and it is infallible and that you are illumined as a believer to understand it. That's all explaining why you know what you know and that you got this from the best source possible. That bibliology is your epistemology. It's your epistemology. It's already taken care of etiology, why things are the way they are, well, that's every story of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's just telling you why things are the way they are. It's history. If you're wondering, why does the Bible have so many stories? Why can it just not tell me this and this and this and give me a laundry list of what to do? It's far more efficient. The Bible, God had a better plan. And he said, I know what it takes to have a worldview. Every time you read a story, you're understanding why things are the way they are and all the pieces that fit into that and also the God over all of those pieces. You need, you need that. You need to understand this world, and etiology accomplishes that. Eschatology. Eschatology. The Bible has that too. We know that. It's debated. It's got so much eschatology that we talk about it a lot, and we don't want to talk about it at all, but we should. We should. I was recently talking with some staff members at the Master's University, and they said, why is it that young people seem to feel the weight of trial greater than before? And why is it that their resilience sometimes wanes? How can we help them? And I think, in part, there are many factors, but in part, a factor is this, that churches have talked less about eschatology. You cannot endure well if you do not know where the finish line is. You cannot endure well when your words constantly on your head is, it's over, it's over, it's over. No, brothers and sisters, it's not over. And when it is over, we win. That's the truth of the matter. 
There is a moment that we are all waiting for, and it is not the here and now. All history moves to one singular moment when Christ receives his kingdom and he conquers this entire world and every wrong is made right and sin is judged forever and the problem of evil is resolved in every molecule of this creation. That's our eschatology. It is not over now. It will be over in the end, and in that, God has the final say, and it is the best say for those who know him. We need eschatology. We need eschatology. We need it done right, not just for the sake of debate. Yes, we need it done exactly the way the Bible does it and the way the Bible presents it. What does not Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Does he not say comfort each other with these things? 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And do not grieve as those without hope. Everyone needs hope. Eschatology is hope. That's what it is. And the Bible, from the very beginning, has eschatology. Genesis 3.15, that Christ will crush the serpent's head, bruise his head, is eschatology. It is about what happens in the end. God always has had an end game, and he's declared it from the beginning. So the Bible has eschatology. And of course, then, the Bible has ethics telling you why you do what you do. And even then, well, we could keep it simplistic and say, look at all the commands of Scripture. Look at all the information that God has done in salvation and justification and adoption and sanctification and regeneration and the like. Amen and amen. All of that is tied to theology. Why do we love? Because God first loved us. Why do, why do we prize marriage? Because it reflects the love of Christ in the gospel as he is one with the church so man and woman are one with each other. Why do children obey their parents? The same word for obey there is the same term where it says that Christ the Son obeyed his Father even unto death, even death on a cross. Everything is rooted in theology. Why do we love? Because before Romans 1 says we were unloving and Romans 12 says love one another. How can the unloving depraved one become the loving one? By the gospel that is discussed in Romans 1 through 11. That's how you become a loving person. Everything, every imperative is not just a random imperative. It is rooted in the person and work of the Godhead. That is what is going on in ethics. By the way, a good example of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. I love this. Moses kind of speaks a little bit like Yoda. Uh, it says, what, shall, what does the Lord require of you? And often in translations, because you don't want to sound like Yoda, it'll say, you should fear God. You should serve him. You should swear by his name. But the LSB rightly, because we, we're trying to reflect the awkward wording in Hebrew, it says, him you shall serve. Him you will swear by. Him you will fear. Even the commands are not about you. They're about God. They're about God. And that's Moses' point. Ethics isn't just do this, do that. It is live out the etiology and eschatology. Live out what God has done and why things are the way they are and what he will do in the future and the hope that we have. Live that out. The scripture has it all. The scripture has it all. And let me just say a couple of lessons here, right here, because they're so important for ourselves, for parenting and everything. Sometimes in devotional life, sometimes in devotional life, when you're reading 
your Bible. You don't always have an emotional aha moment where you think, oh, my life has changed. The sun is shining brighter. Wow, the clouds have gone away, and now I'm ready to live for the next eight hours. Anything that Satan or anybody throws my way, no problems, because I just understood that verse better. Maybe sometimes you have that. Maybe every day you have that. That's a praise, but sometimes you don't, and you get frustrated. You think, what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. Nothing. Because the way worldview works and the way the scriptures work is that it's always ingraining in your mind a paradigm. It's always sharpening in your mind how you think about things. It's always working on you. Maybe it's not dramatic to you, but it's demanded for you to be worked on that way. There is a reason, let me just put it this way, when you see tragedies and and our society is so plagued by them that we say, that one person says, that tragedy maybe a school shooting, maybe murder, maybe whatever it is. It's because this person had a terrible childhood, lacked privilege, lacked opportunity, did not lack guns, and, and therefore the solution is less video games, more uh, opportunities, more increase in scholarship funds, and uh, we put an embargo on guns. And then that's what they think the solution is. And then somebody else will say, well, that's because of sin. And this is the depraved world, and that person is responsible, and the tragedy can only be solved by the gospel. How is it that you can have totally two different interpretations of both problem and solution? It's simple, because one person's mind is being constantly reworked by the Scripture all the time, so that you see how things are, and you start to say with Israel's history, oh yeah, they sinned. You can't call idolatry just um, mistaken identity of God. You know, it's wrong. And, and, and God's not going to tolerate that. He's holy. He's not just a loving God or a vending machine. You start to realize that. And when he judges, it's a big deal. And, and it's harsh. And it's intense. And you start to learn these things. You start to read and you realize, hey, your sin will find you out. And we call sin not just mistakes, not just lack of opportunities, not just mistaken identities, not just whatever society, psychological terms wants to put on there. We call it sin. We call it breaking the law. We call it a crime against God. And we also have a God-focused perspective. We're not just saying, well, look, David, he just didn't really have a fulfilled life. And uh, because of his lack of fulfillment, look at what happened. And you could have a fulfilled life if you didn't follow David. We don't talk like that. We don't think like that. Because the Bible, in its stories, keeps anchoring us to be about God and to see the world the way he does over and over and over and over. And all you are doing is practicing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You know, they used to say about a lot of things, sports or music, practice makes perfect, yes? Well, it really doesn't. I learned that the hard way. (laughs) But what practice does is it makes permanent. It makes permanent. And every day you are in the Word. You are making permanent how to think about life because you are learning why things are the way they are. Your devotions are never wasted. You don't always have to have an emotional high when you come out of reading your Bible. You have to know, you have to read it with understanding 
and God is shaping your understanding as you read it, as long as you read it correctly. Correctly. Set the right expectations. And along that line, understand this. You need every part of your Bible. Sometimes we like reading certain parts because they seem more practical to us. You know, all those theology nerds, they like Ephesians 1 through 3, but the practical people, we like Ephesians 4 through 6. All the, all the nerds, oh, they, they love the Reformation and such. They love Romans 1 through 11. But we practical people, we like Romans 12 through 16. All those weirdo Old Testament people that beg us to read the Old Testament, they enjoy a genealogy in those stories. But all the normal, real people of life, we, we go to the, you know, the last third of the Bible, that is the New Testament. Know this, God in his wisdom gave us every part of Scripture, and you need every part. You don't just have the ethics. You need why things are the way they are. And now I think you might be able to read those Old Testament stories a little bit better, because now you're just saying, why are things the way they are? How do you put labels correctly on things when they did evil in the sight of Yahweh? And let me just repeat that and see that over and over and over and over and over again and get my mind in that pattern Why do we have eschatology? Because I do need to know the future. I do need to know what matters. I do need to know that this is the way things are going to be. I can plan accordingly if I know that. And of course we need ethics. And of course we need to understand with full certainty the Bible is our authority. And here's why that's the case. The scripture has it all. You need every part of your Bible. There is no wasted genre, no wasted part of the Bible. God has perfectly designed it all. And ironically, man has just caught up on what God had been always doing all along. Finally, even as we have to counsel ourselves and remind ourselves, hey, every time I read the Bible, it's profitable. Every time it's chipping away sin and renewing the mind, as Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 remind us, we have to do that with those we disciple and specifically with our children with our children. Let me just apply it that way. You know, sometimes you're telling kids information about the scriptures, you're going through the scriptures or theology, giving them a lesson. Maybe it's impromptu, or maybe it's a set scheduled time, but often parents struggle with the same phenomena that happens either way. It seems like your kid is completely out to lunch. They're not paying attention at all. They're throwing a ball hopefully just up in the air, but usually at somebody. And then you have more issues to deal with. And, and you know, it, you, you don't know if they're really paying attention or not, but when they stick their fingers in their ears, it just, just gives off this vibe that maybe they're not really listening to you. You just keep going. Because you don't always, you know, what do you think is going to happen? You think you're Jonathan Edwards and you just say some things and all of a sudden revival breaks out into your house? You just keep going. Let the word of God work. Let it work. Just the way it worked on you. And you didn't even know it. It is slowly ingraining in them the right paradigm. At least what is true. They may resist it to the nth degree, because not all children are believers, and we recognize that. They will suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but they will have the truth. They will have it. So you just keep going, and you just keep dripping on them, and you just keep telling them, whether they're paying attention or not, 
You just keep going and going and going, and they will learn epistemology. They will learn mom and dad always go back to the Word of God. This is authoritative, not CNN, not Fox News, not certainly not social media, not my friends, not my experience. It's the Word of God. You just keep bringing them back, bringing them back, bringing them back. And they will learn etiology. They will learn the categories of sin, both in how you teach the Scripture and how you apply the Scripture to every single situation and how you discipline them. And they will learn eschatology when things are hard and you keep pointing to the hope. And they will learn what really matters now. You just keep teaching over and over and over and over, and you don't give up because just like the Word of God keeps chiseling away in your life and keeps refining you in your life, so it will do for them. It's no different. It's no different. You think you're better than them? No, you're not. So we all need this. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Kevin DeYoung one time said, I believe it was at Shepherd's Conference on Inerrancy, that when he was confronted in his college years about questions on the authority and nature of the Scripture, he just remembered what his parents said. He didn't even remember all the details. He said he wasn't you know, really paying attention when they talked with him. But he just remembered, this is not the Christianity that my parents talked about. This is not how they thought about the Bible. And that caused him pause and prevented him from deviating in college. And he said, you know, when kids leave their parents in college, and I, and I see this every once a year minimum, you know, they're not weeping and crying and giving their parents, like, thanks for giving me a biblical worldview. I won't depart from it. It's such an investment, you know. That is not, I've never seen that in my life. Watch, it'll happen this year. Everyone will do it just to spite me. Praise God. But it's true. They may not say that. They may just be looking at their phone and say, see ya. But their heart has been shaped if you've been faithful. That's the nature of the Word of God. It is all-sufficient. Every part, teach every part. It is going to chisel. It is going to refine. That's what it does. Does it always break out in revival? Not always. It doesn't need to. It just needs to renew the mind. That's what it does. And it does a perfect job at doing that. Scripture has it all. Scripture has it all. The Scripture is greater in breadth. Okay, I better keep going because... Um, This is still the first point, and within the first point, the first point of the first point, so let's go. Greater in depth. Greater in depth. The Scripture isn't just broader. It isn't just, hey, this is an entire framework of worldview that puts every single piece of knowledge within it, not outside of it. The Scripture is the embracing framework. It's comprehensive in that way. It is greater in depth. What we have to understand is that when you look at something, sometimes we don't even know all that we are looking at and the questions of how we can know and why things are and why things work and what is fully happening, we don't often understand that. But, and we take so much for granted. But the Scripture actually is deeper because it undergirds everything we take for granted and everything that we experience. Let me just give you some examples of this. For instance, communication. People say, well, yeah, we talk all the time. We, we have conversations all the time. How does that work? How does that work? Have you ever thought about that? How is it that I can say sounds right now and you all can nod your head? 
and we think we know what we're saying to each other. How is it that I can draw squiggles on a page, you call them letters, and you read it, and it makes sense to you? That's crazy. That's crazy. And if you think, well, I don't know, because letters make sense. They're always, okay, let me give you a different language. Let me give you Hebrew, which somebody one time said looks like worms smashed on a page. And when you read that, you say, this doesn't, I don't know what any of this means. How could anyone make sense of this? But people do. How is that? How is that? What you do every day, you talk. And somehow information gets conveyed across. It's the classic example of what people joke about the two cavemen. One says, ugh, and the other one says, ugh, and the other one says, back, ugh, and the other responds, ugh, and then the other one says, ugh, ugh, and the guy says, don't change the subject. How do you know that? How do you know that? How does all that work? Communication is profound. Communication is crazy. In fact, we can even do games on communication. We do. If you've ever played a game like Catchphrase or Taboo, I can say different words that are associated with another word, and you can guess the right word. For God so loved. No one says, for God so hated, for God so flew, for God... I mean, we don't do that. We have a buildup. This is actually what even fuels AI in the course chat GPT range and everything, is that there are very set protocols of guessing and projecting the next phrase. We have all of that. That is amazing to think about. So what actually happens when communication takes place? People know it works, you just don't know why. The Bible can explain why. The Bible can explain why. In fact, it goes back to the Trinity... The only reason you can have communication where two independent parties, so to speak, become one in understanding is because you have the ultimate person, persons who are one. That is in the triune Godhead. And notice what they say when they create man. Let us make man in what? Our image. All relationships are predicated upon the Trinity. Same thing with love. Love. Everyone loves love. It's even a size of ice cream at Cold Stone. It's so beloved. I mean, everyone loves love. They just, and they want to support the notion of love, but they can't, and they can't live consistently with their own notions of love. If an evolutionist talks about love, they would say, yes, it's a biochemical, biological reaction meant for the propagation of the species. Put that on a Hallmark card. Happy Valentine's Day. I have a biological, biochemical reaction to you for the sake of the propagation of the species. (laughs) Red heart. Other people don't even believe love exists. How can it exist if all you are are about yourself and you don't have any epistemological certainty? Uh, One time, Francis Schaeffer was talking with a couple on a boat. They were on their honeymoon. Talk about an awkward moment. But... Um, Francis Schaeffer, the guy was saying, look, there's no way that we know anything exists without God. And he was an avowed atheist. This individual was on his honeymoon. And he said, I don't know anything exists. And Francis Schaeffer says, do you know that your wife exists? And do you know if you really love her? Well, now that's a question. (laughs) What do you say? If you say yes, then Francis Schaeffer wins. If you say no... You're on your honeymoon. (laughs) So the man said no. Right in front of his wife. People believe things and they want things to be true 
but they have no idea why they are. There's always something deeper than that. Let, let, me, let me phrase it this way. It's, it's fascinating. People think, well, yeah, but people, believe, people can know things on their own without the Bible. The Bible doesn't have to undergird everything, does it? How about 2 plus 2 equals 4? People know that, don't they? And they can know it without the Bible. They do know it, but they've actually known it because they borrow from the Bible. Let me just illustrate the full ethics of this. Why, when an unbeliever says 2 plus 2 equals 4, why are they saying that? And to what end are they saying that? When a believer says 2 plus 2 equals 4, they say it for totally different reasons. We say 2 plus 2 equals 4. Why? Because of the God of heaven and earth who's orderly. He made the world. And in ordaining the world, he set up rules. And in these rules, there's objective truth. And two plus two then equals four because of correspondence with reality. And all of this is evidencing and illustrating and uh, promoting the glory of God and how he ordained all things. It is from him, for him, and through him, and to him. That's what's going on with two plus two equals four. That's the full claim. That's why science can and should be always worship to God. And in fact, that's what's supposed to happen because all of creation is what? Declaring the glory of God. Psalm 19, Romans 1. So what science should be doing, what it ought to be doing, is drawing on that and pushing everything back to the glory of God. That can only be rooted from the scriptures. That's the truth of the matter. That's what objectively is taking place. However, what does an unbeliever say? Two plus two equals four. Why? Well, because evolution's true. There is no God. What you have are the rules of science. Those are eternal. Matter's eternal. And two plus two equals four is the demonstration that human beings are self-sufficient. And this is the matter of demonstrating the supremacy of man's logic and reasoning and his autonomy from anything in the world. For the unbeliever, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the act of defying God. For the believer, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the act of worshiping God. You can't have anything more different. What is the unbeliever doing even when he says 2 plus 2 equals 4? He is suppressing the truth in what? Unrighteousness. That's all that's going on. That's all that's going on. You have to understand what is going on fully. We know 2 plus 2 equals 4 in two very different ways ways. And the only reason they can have 2 plus 2 equals 4 with that consistency, with that regularity, with that objectivity, is because someone objective had to put it there. The only reason that they can remotely become right, especially in Western civilization, is because they were borrowing from the Bible the whole time. They were borrowing from it to reject it in total hypocrisy. That's what was going on. And it's for this very reason that as society decouples from biblical convictions, now people say, well, two plus two is not four. That's just a racist, oppressive ideology. And that's true. I mean, not two plus two does equal four. It is true that people are saying that. And you know what? They're right. Say, what? Yeah. If you don't want authority over you, then you don't want any rules. And they are absolutely right. This is an authority over them. They recognize it. And they don't want the Bible's authority over them. And so they will reject biblical authority wherever it pops up, including math. That's where this society is going. But here's what it points out. The Bible's undergirding everything, even math, even science, even history. 
Whatever it is, the Bible is undergirding it. And it has the only way to explain the parts of the whole, even parts that society and science and human ideology can't even tap into, but know is there. Just by one more way of illustration, as some of you might know, recently my mom went to be with the Lord. And the situation was where she had a brain aneurysm. And so she's lying in the bed, and the doctor comes in, and he's clearly, clearly nervous. Because these kinds of situations, they get litigated in court and and everything. And he says, here's the situation. Um, This is very tricky. We need to bring in lawyers and everything to kind of work through it all. I said, well, what's the issue? And they said, well, the brain can give, the brain as an organ can give certain electrical patterns. And based upon those electrical patterns, you know, some people might say that the brain as an organ is functioning, but nobody's home. And I said, well, as a scientist, do you believe that? And he says, well, science can't actually identify when nobody's home because we only believe in the physical and now you feel they, you see the tension that they're under. And, and, it, and it historically happened this way as I was researching this whole issue. Scientists and the ethics board of the American Medical Association had to define what the nature of brain death was. And in doing so, they said, hey, when you have certain EKG patterns, what we have is that people don't have the volition to live. They don't have the will to their, 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 their immaterial force of life is departed from their body. Well, you can imagine scientists who are evolutionists who only believe in the material reading that and saying, you can't have that definition. That definition doesn't make any sense. How do you quantify something that's immaterial? How do you, how do you have something that's non-physical in what can only be physical? We reject your definition, American Medical Association Board of Ethics. And the Board of Ethics was kind of snarky and reading the report back, and they said, do you want to go to prison? You have to accept our definition or you'll go to prison. Why? Because if a scientist says, well, biologically this person's alive, and they pull the plug, then they've committed what? Murder. So the American Medical Association says, you want to commit first-degree murder, or do you want our definition? Because there's no way we can see around this. We don't have a model that explains what is really going on to solve this conundrum. So... I was reading all this, and I thought, wow, this is where biblical, biblical anthropology is so important. We don't just believe we're a body. We don't just believe we have a brain. We believe we're body and soul. We don't just have a brain. We have a mind. And we also know that absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. We know that. We have what is truly going on, what stumps every single scientist, what they can't get around. By the way, the scientists did acquiesce to the medical board under protest. Under protest. The protest is still lodged, evidently, from what I've read. And what they could never answer, we do have an answer. And I was talking with the doctor about these things, and he said, Wow, that's so clear. And he says, I don't believe it. And I said, well, you should. Uh, but, but he says, that's amazingly clear and that you can know that with certainty. What is he dealing with? He, he knows his limitation. He knows what he cannot answer. He knows he, can't, he needs an answer, 
but he can't get at that answer. The Bible goes deeper than a lot of what knowledge we have. It undergirds why we know what we know, what is fully happening, and how we can know all those things. It's exactly what Proverbs 8 tells us. Proverbs 8 says this, that wisdom is embedded in the way this world is. Wisdom is founded before the mountains, which are the most stable things, before the valleys, which are the most permanent things. Wisdom has that kind of foundationalness. Wisdom has that kind of fundamental, defining nature. It is what sets what is. Definitions are so important. They are so important because you can't get any deeper or more foundational than a definition. It's just by definition. It's just by definition. It's just the way it is. You know, why, you know, a child says, I want to jump off the bed. And they're wearing, you know, a towel or something, pretending they're Superman. You say, you can't do that. Why? Because there's gravity. Why? Uh, Because there's wind resistance and you don't have enough wind resistance to overcome gravity with that kind of towel. It's just not possible given the distance between the bed and the floor. Uh, you, don't ha- you don't accumulate. Well, why is that true? Well, because there are rules of physics that dictate all of those things. It's pretty mathematical. Well, why is that? Because God created it that way. Well, why? Because it's for his glory. Well, why is it for his glory? Because it is. Well, why is that? Because it is. Because it's for his glory. You can't get more definitional. You just stop. There's nothing more. And the kid is delighting because he's annoyed you, but you can't do anything because you've hit definition. You've hit bedrock. The Bible is that bedrock. It is that definition. It is what is the foundation for every single thought and why things are the way they are. And as such, it fills out all the information between what you know and everything in between. That's what the Bible does. And by the way, by the way, that matters. That matters. Because you can't defy definitions. You can't defy definitions. Look at, you know, the kid. You know, he, he doesn't listen to you, and in your flesh you're kind of glad because he's going to learn it the hard way. And so he jumps off the bed, and he just meets, kid meets gravity. Gravity wins. And you say, see, you don't win. You don't win. Because you can't beat a definition. Definitions are the way they are. They don't bend to you. You bend to them. That's the way it works. That's the way the Bible works. Have you ever wondered why sin hurts so much? Because you can't win against the Bible. When the Bible says this is the way it is, and you have to get in line, and you don't, the Bible will win every single time. And all that will happen to you and me is that we get hurt. We get hurt. Because you can't fight reality and win. And the Bible is total reality. That's what Proverbs 8 reminds us. And so be careful here. Here's an additional warning. The Bible reminds us, hey, you don't just pick and choose a, a data point. There's a whole context to it. And you have to see it for all that's going on. In fact, you need to see it for all that's going on. And the Bible is the only thing that can tell you all that's going on with it. It's what has greater depth. And therefore, we need to be careful when we start to just pick and choose and start to incorporate things into our lives, that normalcy issue, because you can buy a view and get a worldview free. You can buy a view and get a worldview free. You don't even know it. Social justice. People say, well, I want to help people. But then you don't realize you're buying it into an entire ideology about social justice. 
a, to- a totally different religion. Or how about this one, social media. Anything with a social on it nowadays has a problem. But social media. I remember when social media first came out. I had a friend at Harvard, and he, was, he had just flown out to visit me, and he says, you got you to gotta get in on this social media thing, Facebook. I, gotta, I, gotta, I can get you in. And I said, what do you do on Facebook? He goes, you share pictures and, and talk to your friends. I was like, like, I, like I'm doing now? He says, yeah, but, it, but it's, I said, but it's what? Why, why would I do that? And he couldn't answer me. This, he's from Harvard. He couldn't answer me. Why? Because when you have certain presuppositions, social media doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. But when you buy the view, you change all your presuppositions. You change your view on what social is. What is the nature of relationships? What is the nature of community? What is the nature of friendship? You change your view on what communication is, what media is, what truth is, what, what constitutes proper, proper conversation. You change all of that. You change what you even should talk about. Social media says, how are you feeling? Post how you feel. Before in normal world, you would never say all that's on your mind or how you're feeling. You would have something called self-control. That's what would happen. But now, every rule has changed. And what was completely preposterous 10, 20 years ago is now normal. And every definition of media and society and relationships and truth and communication and what should be communicated and how to communicate and what is transparency and what is not transparency, all of it has changed because of one thing, social media. It's that powerful. You buy a view, you get a worldview free. You get a worldview free. And you don't even know what's going on. That's why the Bible is so important. It's, people wonder, is it relevant? Of course it's relevant. It tells you the depth of everything. And you don't even realize things are shifting until you analyze things that way and analyze them underneath the authority of Scripture. Well, Scripture is not just broader, encompassing all things, deeper, undergirding all things. It's higher. It's higher. It tells you the value, the purpose, the meaning in what we do. People say, hey, you can have a nice life. You could have work hard and get money. You could have an occupation that you enjoy. You know, Ecclesiastes reminds us, and it's such a powerful book, that all of that is vanity. That all that the world pursues, it just doesn't work. That's why you have so many unhappy rich people. Because they, they thought that this would buy them happiness to only realize you can't buy it. You can't buy it. And Ecclesiastes is just this massive attack on everything and anything that people think is valuable. Any reason why we do what we do. Do you do it for the money? Solomon says, I'm rich. No, you can't do that. It doesn't really buy you anything. Do you do it because it's philosophically satisfying? It has wisdom in it. Solomon says, no, that doesn't really work either. And he reminds you, you you save up so much in your life only to die. And then you give it to people that you can't control because you're dead. This is the futility of inheritance. You know how many laws are about probate and inheritance? Why? Because they're trying to overcome the Solomonic problem of Ecclesiastes. Inheritance law. That's what's going on. Because people are still trying to say, 
okay, you accumulated all these things, good for you, now what? Especially when your life is over. And you might say, okay, you can't win in death, that's fine, death is a great equalizer. Maybe you can win in life. Okay, get ahead. Well, guess what? When you're oppressed by somebody, somebody else is oppressing them. So when you get ahead, somebody's always going to be ahead of you. It can never win. If that's, if that's your logic, you will never, never, ever, ever, ever win. Okay? People say, hey, Abner, now you're president. You're in charge. That is the biggest lie. <laughs> it's not true at all. Always somebody ahead of you. Always somebody ahead of you. People say, oh, well, you want to do it so that you look cool to others. Ecclesiastes says, jealousy can drive you crazy. You're always trying to catch up with somebody else, and when you catch up with them, guess what? They have something else, so then you just keep going, and then you can't ever win against them. So then Ecclesiastes says, I know, then don't have anybody in your life. Be completely by yourself. And that's why Ecclesiastes says two is better than what? One. You can't win. You can't win. You want to be with people? You'll be jealous. If you want to be by yourself, you'll be by yourself, and you'll be at a disadvantage. You can't. You can't win. And You say, okay, fine, then I'll just spend everything now on me. That way I'll win. And then Ecclesiastes says, and I saw, this is how it concludes, I saw a man who left no inheritance for his children, and his children suffered. You can't win. If you give them something, you lose. If you don't give them something, you lose. What do you learn from this? You lose. (laughs) That's Ecclesiastes' big point. All is vanity. You lose. If all you're thinking about is how the world is thinking about things, you're in a no-win situation because there's just too many holes, too many fallacies. It's all fallible. You will never win. You want to know how to have a life that means something? You have to go higher than worldly thinking. If you want to have a life that means something, that has valuableness to it, you need to transcend this world, and its temporality. Why can you enjoy a sunset? Why can you enjoy a vacation? Why can you enjoy a gift? Why can you enjoy your family? Why can you enjoy even wealth? Because you recognize God gave it to you. And it's a gift. And if it's a gift, you can enjoy it. That's what Ecclesiastes reminds you. And for that very reason, God gave us suffering. So you can enjoy that too. Because the God who gives you good is also the God who gives you things that are disadvantaged. And he's good in that too. And what lasts in the end, and this is exactly what Ecclesiastes concludes, is this, is it not? Fear God and keep his what? Commandments. Because that's the only thing that will last and outlast this world. Everything else you think will win, it won't. Solomon's the expert. He knows. And it doesn't mean you reject all those things. No, it means you need something higher that makes them valuable. And that is God. That is God. And therefore, a life worth living for is a life worth living for for him, which is the final point. You see, the Bible goes broader, it goes deeper, it goes higher, and it goes further. It goes further. It actually can extend beyond what is going on in all the ideologies of this world. Every year, there's a graduation at schools across the country, and and they all just kind of make me laugh. Uh, I know, it's because I'm so cynical. Um, And and because the speakers they get, 
movie stars or who, politicians. They're all up there and they're saying, they're saying, you can change the world. You can make a difference. And I'm just listening to those things. I'm like, that is such a lie. That, that is completely not what Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the what? Sun. The sea goes out and the sea goes in. There's no change. There's nothing new. You think you can make a difference? You know, that's what they even tell kindergartners. You can change the world. That's a lie. It's not true. Not on the world's plane, at least. No way. No way. Students learn this the hard way. They come back after several years being gone from a campus, and they were the big shot on campus, and they come back, and no one knows their name. Students will say, oh, I think I heard about you. Like, weren't you a guy who did this? No. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, they're forgotten. Nothing new under the sun. What Ecclesiastes reminds us then is if you want to really make a difference, you have to make an eternal difference. One that doesn't just last from today or tomorrow, but one that lasts forever. And what's the only thing that can tell you that? Your Bible. Your Bible. God's word has the final word, and it's the word that lasts forever. C.T. Studd put it best. He said, one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the truth of the matter. That's the truth of the matter. You can't win in this life if you do it the world's way. There's no possible way. Ecclesiastes dissects it to the nth degree and proves it. Only what is done for Christ will last. People wonder, is the Bible relevant? You need this. You need this. You need all the Bible for all of existence. If you think, hey, can we compartmentalize the Bible? That's impossible. The Bible has total breadth. If you think, oh, well, maybe the Bible doesn't really have bearing on this situation. It has bearing on every situation. Why? Because it's the foundation for knowing and understanding anything. It has greater depth. If you say, well, I don't know if the Bible's necessary for this situation. If you are asking why you are doing what you are doing, you need the height of Scripture. If you say, I don't know if this is relevant. I don't know if the Bible relevant. It's the only thing that is relevant because it's lasting for forever. It goes further than anything and everything. You need all the Bible for all of your existence. This is not a silo. This is not just part of reality. The Bible is the fabric of reality. It's total truth. That's what we must understand. That's what we have to grasp. And even in parenting, even in parenting, as we think about this, don't, don't lose heart. Keep teaching the scriptures. Keep pounding out the gospel. Keep teaching all of the Bible. Why? Because all of it matters. Why do you have hopeless kids? Because they don't have the complete picture of what is meaningful per the Bible. They've already done, they've already kind of gone through Ecclesiastes and figured out the hard way. Things just don't make sense. Why do you have people who don't know what to do or why they do it or how to think through it or who are very discouraged in it or can't see the value of what they do? They need the Bible to fill out the breadth and the depth and the height and to take them far. We need to understand the beauty of this book, the beauty of this book. You cling to your Bible. You cling to your Bible. Well, that's truth. Yep. And now we need to do two more points in like, 
you know, a third of the time. So let's talk about training. How do we understand education in light of everything that has been said? We know we need to because if the Bible's the breadth, the depth, the height, and it goes further, it's the framework that everything revolves within, not the other way around. And so education and thinking through it is subject to the biblical lens because that's exactly what it is. And the thesis around education, and let me just kind of help us to think through this, is simple. Education is inherently religious. You just have to choose which religion. Education is inherently religious. You just have to choose which religion. And let me prove this for you, both from a historical perspective, and then it ebbs and flows into a theological perspective. From a historical perspective, education is inherently religious, because education, real education in the past, has always stemmed from Scripture. It has always stemmed from religion, and particularly the true religion that is Christianity. If you think about in the United States, Princeton, Harvard, and all the like, they all began as seminaries because people knew that if you were to be trained in truth and the Bible is the truth and Christianity is all about the truth, then you had to be educated, then you had to learn. And that's not just in Christianity and in Western civilization and in America, that's how Oxford started, that's how Cambridge started, and you could go back before that. You could even talk about historically all the way back to Israel. Sometimes people say, hey, like Christian higher education, that's kind of a redundant phrase because higher education began in where? Christianity. So you only really have secular higher education or just regular higher education. Because regular higher education is Christian because it started that way. That's by definition. Any case, go back even to the time of Israel and you say, what is that big rock there? That is what we call the Gezer calendar. Why? Because it's a calendar that we found at a place called Gezer. So <laughs> this calendar it's around the time of David, it's around the time of Solomon, and it's meant to teach kids how to read. It's meant to teach kids how to read. And what becomes evident is that Israel, among ancient societies, was the most literate society in all of all ancient nations. Israel was the most literate society among ancient nations. Why? Because God had already said, you better know this book. If you're going to have to know this book, you're going to have to know how to what? read. You're going to have to know how to read. Education and truth go hand in hand. The more you prize the truth and the more you prize the book, you will be educated. In fact, let's just put it this way. You know what the first step or one of the first steps of Bible translation is? You're like, oh, translating the Bible. No. Teaching a society how to what? Read. Whenever Bible translation happens, you automatically raise the literacy rate of that society by a substantial degree. Education always goes with religion, specifically Christianity, specifically Christianity, because we're people of the book. We're people of the book. And so in history, from Israel's time to New Testament time to Oxford, Cambridge, to Princeton, Harvard, and the like, education is always spinning out from Christianity and even part of Christianity. And that happened and continued and continued and continued and continued, evidencing that all education is truly and inherently religious. And then one day, at the advent of evolution and all these different ideologies, education wanted to become secular. They wanted to become secular. 
They wanted to split off from that religious background. They wanted to become more public and more objective in their mind. And so they split off. And that's how we have public, quote-unquote, secular education now. And in our minds, when we think secular education, we think it's neutral. It's just non-religious. Even just look at the nomenclature. No one says what it really is. It's just a pagan school. It's a school of pagan religion. It's a public school of pagan religion. That's what it is. And you say, are you really sure? Well, let's look at it theologically. These schools have their own cosmology, origins. It's called evolution, isn't it? These schools have their own anthropology, like LGBTQ. These schools have their own angelology. Namely, they don't have one because they deny the supernatural. These schools have their own harmardiology, doctrine of sin. It's called psychology. Which you say, but psychology doesn't talk about sin. Exactly. That's their doctrine of sin. There's, this school has their own eschatology. They talk about the progressive vision and everyone being the same and reparations and restoration and all the social changes that can have. This school has their own theology proper. This school has their own bibliology. It's called science. This school has their own God. It's not God. It's man and his reason. When you have all ten systematic categories of religion in a school, what is that called? A religion. Public school is just a religion. It's just a different one. But what they have done cleverly is they have you buy into that they're non-religious. That's because it feels normal to say that. That's because it's permissible, so it became acceptable. That's all that's going on. They're their own religion. And so there are some ramifications here to understand. You need to understand what public education really is. When you send your child to public school, you are sending them to a school that teaches secular religion. That's what you're doing. That's it. It's no different than going to any other religious school. It's just a different religion. And we have to understand the role of education in society today in in kind of two ways. If fundamentally, if you remember even watching the Essential Church movie, and, and if you haven't done so, I would highly encourage you to do so, but they had an ex-KGB officer in that, in that uh, film, in that documentary, and he mentioned it takes 15 to 20 years to overturn a society. Why? Because that's how long it takes to educate its youth and put them into power. Education is powerful in society. Education then has powerful ramifications on the church. And we can even see this in the trickle-down effect, and this is still under point two, of all that happens in the trends and ideologies of society. CRT, where did it come from? Originally, universities. LGBTQ, where did it come from? Originally, universities. Social justice, where has it been discussed? Universities. Deconstructionism, where has it been discussed? Universities. Every false ideology that our society has encountered has come from universities. And why has it so easily infiltrated the church? It's really easy. Because kids have been primed to accept it. Because that's how they were indoctrinated at the schools. And so when it came into the church, they just said, well, this is normal. This is what I've been learning. This is what I have learned. This is what I understood for the past dozen years. And therefore, when it hits and comes in, it's no big deal to accept it. There's no discernment. And so education can be a subversive force, and it has been subversive, and it's been illustrated to be that when you look at every single ideology that we are dealing with now, it all stemmed from the university. Now, point three, understand parental responsibility. 
We can never go into autopilot as parents. More on this in a second. We do have a responsibility for our children to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we can't be neglectful about putting some pieces together. Understand parental joy. John, by analogy, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. There are some things far more important than jobs, occupation, fame, wealth, or stability. There are some things money just can't buy and buy back. And the hardest things in life sometimes as a pastor are to walk with parents whose children are not walking with the Lord. It's agonizing. It's agonizing. We must remember what truly is parental joy. And understand this. Even as parents, we have our role is a very weighty role because it is part of God's plan and redemptive history to bolster the church. And it is training up the next generation of the church in part. And that needs to come into place as we deal with these issues as well. And so in light of all of this, let's talk about parenting a little bit. Let's talk about parenting a little bit. I think we need to recover the parent as chief educator. The parent as chief educator. It's, let me just say this fundamentally by way of encouragement, and I don't want to lose this even, even at the expense of time because it's so important. Sometimes as people in church, we think, oh, I don't know if I really do much. I serve in these hidden ways. It's not flashy. And I'm not even really kind of, I'm kind of indirectly tied to what the Bible's talking about. You got pastors and you got elders. They're mentioned in the Bible. And you got all these other individuals that are mentioned in the Bible. They directly participate in the plan of God. But I just don't really do much. You do realize how often the Bible talks about parenting, yes? If you are a parent, you are directly participating in the plan of God, like a pastor, like an elder, like a missionary, like an evangelist. You are in the plan of God. This is your sacred role. You can never lose that. If you are married, likewise, that's directly mentioned in the Bible. You are playing a role in the eternal plan of God by doing those things. And by obeying any command, you are doing the same thing. But here we are talking about parenting. Never lose the honor of parenting. Never lose the privilege of parenting. This is something that contributes to the eternal plan. You may not think it's valuable, but here's the problem. It's the problem we've been talking about before. We don't often know the depth of all that's going on. But the Bible fills in that depth because it's deeper than what we think about. And there's more to it than we realize. And the Bible, when it talks about parents, it talks about their love and their compassion and the like. Amen and amen. But you know what it talks about two parents about most? It's fascinating. It talks, when it talks to parents, it talks about their imparting the truth. Deuteronomy 6, teach them the word of God. Proverbs, every time father and mothers are addressed, it's about discipline and reproof and correction, about a mother's 
uh, law and about a mother's instruction. Proverbs 31, a mother is giving the truth to her son. 2 Timothy chapter 1, it is about the gospel which is handed down from grandmother to mother to child, in this case, Timothy. What you have over and over and over and over and over is the emphasis of the Bible above anything else. It's not about feeding, caring, taking to activities, athletics, academics, whatever. It is about give them the truth. Give them the truth. That is overwhelmingly, every time parents are addressed, it's along this very line. It's along this very line. Parents, you are the chief educator of your child. That doesn't mean that you have to teach them every single subject and every single thing. But it means this, you need to make sure the truth is secured in their lives. You need to make sure the truth is secured in their lives. And, of course, there are issues of conscience in this whole situation of education and parenting choices. People say, well, you're a TMU guy, and you oversee Legacy Christian and Grace Academy and all these other organizations, and and so, of course, you're going to have to say that you have to go to these things. Um, No. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of conscience. The... You might say, well, but, but a pagan school is a pagan school. It, it teaches pagan religion. Can you really survive there? Daniel did. Did he not? He was there. You say, well, Daniel was older. Yeah, like 12. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. It's a matter of conscience. The last thing we want are people to just start thinking one way is better than the other and snubbing another person. This is a matter of conscience. This is a matter of us understanding the situation that we're in. And look, there are a lot of options with strengths and weaknesses. Can you send your kid to a secular pagan school that teaches pagan religion? Yes, you just need to do so with eyes wide open. You need to understand that when you do that, you have to be willing to fight for your child and fight within your child. You may have less flexibility academically, and, but higher focus on the battles that are going to be, have to be fought in their lives. And some of you might say, well, I don't think a kindergartner can win that battle. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And so there are other options as well. You have options of homeschooling. And you say, Those, that sounds advantageous. Yes, there are advantages of flexibility, but there's also a breadth of focus that you're going to have to maintain. There is pros and cons to everything in this. It, it, there are challenges, and we have to go in with eyes wide open. And you might say, okay, well, I, I might like a little bit of both. Is there another option? Sure, there's hybrid. You can do half and half. You can do half homeschooling, and you know, it's like, have it your way. You can do anything in, in this situation. That's true, and they come with pros and cons as well. Half and half means, yes, you have a little less flexibility, but you have people assisting you, but guess what? You're still going to have to keep evaluating the truth in the life. You're going to have to evaluate the consistency of what they're learning and what is factual, accurate, and biblical. That's always going to have to take place. You might say, well, maybe I prefer private school. You can do that too. That's an option too. And again, while there has less flexibility, kind of similar to public school relative to the flexible option, but nevertheless, there is, with the lack of customizability, you can have more focus to invest in your children in certain ways, with certain activities, with certain endeavors, and always with the truth. You have lots of options. You have lots of options that fit different 
positions and providences of life that the Lord has placed us in. But here's what's not optional. You have to be the chief educator for your child. What you will be held accountable to in the end is whether or not you have instilled the truth in your children and captured every thought to the lordship of Christ. Hey, if you have extra help along the way or you're the sole educator, maybe in some ways that's easier. Maybe in some ways that's more difficult and harder. Either way, the principle still remains the same. What is not optional is that you're the chief educator. So in light of this, what we need to do is we need to recover our responsibility. Often in parenting, we can just go into autopilot. I'm guilty of this myself. And you just go with the flow because... Things are normal. This is the default way of doing it. And so this is the way we do it. And we don't think twice. We are the chief educator for our children. These are decisions you don't want to make lightly. You are and I am accountable to the Lord for this. We want to be conscientious. We want to get this right. The Bible's imperatives toward parenting is along this very lines. And we know if God cares about it that much, we need to care about it that much. We need to remember that we are in a silent war. Yeah, in a lot of different educational systems, your child may look fine from the outside, but we're not just after that. We're looking at what they are on the inside. And remember then the privilege of parenting and even discipleship of young people. This is what's explicitly named in Scripture. Your job, your occupation, your fame, those aren't mandated by the Bible. Parenting is, though. Parenting is. Don't trade what is optional for what is eternal. Don't trade what is optional for what is eternal. Recover the privilege and the honor of parenting and discipleship. And in the last minute or so, turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. There's a prerequisite to all this. And you say, well, how, how, can, I, how can I do better at all of this and think through all of this. And yes, we could talk about practical steps of discipline and, and doing research and us wanting to help you. In fact, you can just be in prayer for us because we are, as all these ministries are aligning, thinking of making our own curriculum for homeschool and private school and hybrid school so that we can help supply everybody with really solid resources. And, and we want to do that. And, and I know part of the annoying part of Dealing with curriculum is just shopping around and not knowing where to go. So help us, you know, just pray for us as we try to make it easier for everybody in that regard. And all of that is true, and all of those practical steps should be taken, and, and, and it takes discipline. I recognize that. But none of it will happen unless you do exactly why God talked about parenting to begin with, the foundation of it all. And in Deuteronomy 6... We know that there's the famous phrase about parenting where it talks about um, in verse 7, you, you will teach these things to your children and you will speak to them when you, when you sit down in your house and when you walk out from your, on the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We, we remember that, but we forget why it's being talked about. And it's this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh, and you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I am commanding you this day will be on your what? Your heart. The reason you teach your children is it actually makes you sharp in the word of God. 
And the prerequisite then to teaching your children is to be sharp in the word of God. The word for teach in verse 7, I believe, is actually when it says instruct your children or train your children. It actually means to make them sharp. Your job is to make your children experts in the truth. That is the role of a parent. That is the role of the chief educator. And when you do that, you better be sharp in God's word. And when you are, you will be able to actually navigate through these issues and train your children well. Don't forget the prerequisite of parenting and discipleship. Often we think here, oh, well, I'll just let the pastor, I'll let the elders, I'll let the deacons, I'll let the small group leaders, I'll let them do some theology. I don't have to do it. No, you do. How are you going to train an expert if you're not an expert? Become an expert in the scriptures. Become an expert in the truth and be the chief educator to make your children experts. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this time. May your word be exalted. And may all the more in our hearts we never trade what is eternal for that which is optional. And we endeavor to pursue the highest priorities and and understand the highest honor it is to serve you. And you have given us and you have gifted us with children. And we thank you for that. May we be good stewards of it and endeavor to make them experts in your word. And may it be that our hearts endeavor and our hearts pursuit and our hearts joy is to be an expert in the word of God and ultimately one who loves you with that expertise. In your name we pray, amen.